Listener Production. Welcome to Australian Detectives. I'm Adam Shand. A life can be defined in a single instant. For Carl Donadio, it was 15 seconds after 1pm on March 27, 1986. The 19-year-old constable was crossing Russell Street in downtown Melbourne towards police headquarters when a car bomb exploded. A fellow constable, Angela Taylor, died in the blast, designed to kill as many police as possible. Carl survived. Badly injured, he was never broken and went on to a career in high-stakes surveillance and undercover work and loved his job. The tragedy of Russell Street defined Carl but did not limit him. There's no bitterness towards the men who tried to kill him. They could not stop him doing what he signed up for. Adia, welcome to Strange Detectives. Thank you, Adam. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you. Let's go right back to the beginning. Mm-hmm. How old you were? You were eighteen when you joined. Uh, about eighteen and a half. Yeah, around about that. Yep. Yeah. Did you think you were going to be put in harm's way? Did you consider that? I think you do. I mean, it, the policing today wasn't what it was like back then. We didn't have the level of violence there is today and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, of course, there was no question. I expected that I would either be in punch ups or have a gun pulled on me or. That's the reality of what you do. You join the police force knowing that there are the risks associated with it. Absolutely. And also at that time, there was this growing conflict between police and the villains. Yep. That that culminated obviously in the Wall Street murders. So I guess you could be forgiven for thinking, all I want to do was be a policeman. I'm getting caught up in a a civil war almost. Yeah, almost. Yeah. As idyllic and basic as it sounds, you join the police force to catch crooks, to catch bad guys and to help people. That's... That's the fundamentals to me why you would join the police force. Catch the baddies, help people. That's what it is. And if, if you lose sight of that, then what are you in the police force for? And yeah, there is risks associated. Of course there is. But at the end of the day, you know, like, you know, I went into an undercover career, as you know, and there's a thing called Stockholm Syndrome where you can get very close to the crooks you, you're meeting with daily to do drug deals, whatever it may be. And you've got to be very careful that you don't step over that line. And so the psych unit has, you know, interviews with you as an undercover to make sure you haven't done that. But I never once forgot, I'm the copper, they're the crook, I've got to catch the baddie. That's what the whole rule is. And I think, I know it sounds very simplistic, but that's what it's about, isn't it? Yeah. It's not coffee and donuts. No, that's right. Not the Simpsons. (laughs) A lot of people will remember just one day of your career, March 27, 1986, the Russell Street bombing, you were injured in that blast. It must stay with you. And you must get sick of telling the story. Oh, no, not necessarily. No, it's okay. I don't mind. Why not? Oh, look, I, I haven't had to tell it that many times. Um, I think people are hesitant to ask me about it. They're worried about whether that's mentally it's affected me. Um, and I think they're very hesitant to ask. So a lot of people sort of go, oh, oh you're Carlton Ardio. Not recently, but, you know, years ago. But, yeah, no, it's uh, – I don't mind. I don't mind talking about it. I was lucky to be conscious through it. When I say lucky, I, I think the fact that I was conscious through the whole thing meant that I, I didn't have any great sort of um, flow-on effects mentally from it. Yeah. So, uh, so far, touch wood. So you never far. know. You never know what's going to happen, mate. Post-traumatic stress is a, is a long-term thing. It's, and you also yeah. had 15 years in the police. That's right, yeah. And there are probably other, many other vivid days as well. How do you look at the post of that, whether it's traumatic or whether it's, or it's something else? I don't know the, the technical stuff behind it. I'm not a psychologist or anything like that. I just know that for me it's about it wasn't directed at me. 
that's how I saw it. It was directed at the police force in general. I happened to be caught up in it. So I've never thought of it being a vendetta against me or anything. Now, whether that's affected my outlook on it or how I've recovered from it, I don't know. But I've never once thought, oh, look, I can't talk about it. There's a very good friend of mine. His wife's a teacher. Every year at a private school, they do a uh, part of history. They talk about the bombing. So I go along every year and, and make a cameo appearance for her in the classroom. The students have a chance to ask. They've done a couple of sessions leading into it, and I come in. And um, So I don't mind doing that. I think it's good that um, we can be talking about it, you know, from my perspective anyway. So. Well, you've got... A ready smile and a sparkle in your yeah. eyes that belies your years. So you're about the same age as me, I think. Only young blokes, of course. Only young blokes, yeah, exactly. Right, yeah. So to what do you put down your progression after this? And did, did you have any assistance or was it just all about self-soothing and, and your mates well, around you so forth? It's quite funny you say that because I remember nowadays this um, psychologists come out, the whole welfare unit is very much as it should be in today's world. Back then, I remember getting back to work doing light duties for three months and getting a, a questionnaire in the mail from the police psyche in the back of those days, fill it out, send it in, you'll be right, mate. And I'm like, okay, so that's the only support I ever had, which is not a criticism of them, but that's what it was at the time. So now it's a far different world out there, as we know. So now I don't know whether that's meant that I just had to deal with it, and that's the way it is. Um, in terms of the PTSD stuff, I don't know whether that'll ever affect me. I'm not sure. I don't know. It could hit me in five years' time, 10 years' time. I don't know. So far... It's just been a positive outlook and keep them going. That's but all it's you, about. You're a happy guy. I think I am. I think I'm a pretty happy fellow. I enjoy, uh, I think when you're on this world every day is a bonus, isn't it? So you got to sort of take it as it comes. Yeah, so. I mean, you think of yourself in March 1986, 19-year-old mm-hmm. constable. Do you think that moment changed you? Uh, I don't think it did. I don't think it did. My mother, I remember saying, and obviously she's passed away now, but I remember saying a few years after I'd been in the police force, she thought I'd hardened up a little bit to what I used to be, probably from what you see in terms of everything from your domestic violence to accidents with kids involved, right through the whole gamut of what, what you would see in a, you know, as an operational member of the police force. Um, I remember saying that to me. I don't think it changed me personally. I think I was very young. I'm at 19. You're right. I was probably the fittest I've ever been in my life. I was playing football up at the local team in Ballarat. I was going back and training in the academy and then going the weekends and training more and playing footy. Uh, very fit. The doc sort of said to me, one of the main surgeons, that's probably what saved a lot of the permanent damage in terms of how fit I was. It helped me. Um, so I don't know whether that also, because I was so young, whether that was a reason why it didn't affect me as much mentally. I'm not saying it hasn't, but not to the extent that people would assume that it would have. Yeah, yeah that's right. I guess this is why they send young men to war. They're resilient. Yeah, correct. And they also see this sometimes in quite adventurous terms and the fact that they survive is sometimes does make them a bit bulletproof. And you do, at that age, you don't have the fear or the... Not the fear, but it's like now I ride a motorbike, I don't take anywhere near as many risks as I did when I was an 19 or 20-year-old on a bike. You know, it was like bang, bang through the traffic and off you go. Now it's a bit more, I'll just cruise through because I haven't got the reflexes anymore now. So that's what, maybe that's sort of like that analogy you're talking about in What's a lot of ways. the Clint Eastwood line, a man's got to know his limitations. Yeah, okay? <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Sometimes I don't always follow that, but yeah, there you go, mate. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I think that's probably true though. And as a young bloke, you're, you do, you do feel bulletproof. You know, you can take on the world um, and that's what it's about in some respects, you know, so... Let's deal with that day, March 27, 1986, 15 seconds after 1pm. What were you doing? I was at court security, so part of our training I had to do two weeks at Russell Street as court security. There was no um, protective service officers in those days. I'd gone across to the magistrate's court. My case had actually finished at 12.30. It was a fraud matter. 
And so you sat in the courtroom like court security for the whole day. That was remember the details of the case? Not really, not anymore. Now that that bit's gone. Uh, but I remember there was something that interested me about some of the evidence. So I stayed back at twelve thirty to talk to the clerk of courts and asked her a couple of questions about what had been the evidence. Because obviously you knew you're out. I'd only been to my training station for four months. Then I was back into Russell Street to do your circuit of all these other things. Um, so I remember break early, had a chat to her, had, and that went till about one o'clock. So I remember leaving, going across. I came out the front of the Russell Street court complex, and I remember I'd only been at Russell Street about a week at that stage, I think. It was lunchtime. Didn't know how to get to the canteen, which was on the second floor, I think, in those days. And it was like... So there's the north door, north door and south door. So I remember thinking, I'll go across the road. So I wasn't using the lights. I believe Angela was crossing at the lights, but I was crossing literally from the middle across to the Jaywalking. Pretty much jaywalking, yeah. Yeah, may have saved me. Well, maybe, it probably did, actually. So I got to the middle of the road and thinking, geez, I don't know which where the, where the canteen. I don't know how to get to it from the south door, which is where the car was, the bomb. So I, I deviated to go to the left to head to the north door. And that, yeah, you're right, that probably did save me because at the end of the day, I would have probably been on the car or within a few metres of the car when it went up. I dare say I probably wouldn't have been here. So I've gone towards the north door, started to walk across the two lanes on that side, and next bit of bang, I was straight up the road 20 metres, land on my ass, laying on the ground, uh, on the road, thinking, what the hell happened? 20 metres. That's what they said, the detectives. I didn't sort of know that, but I know I got thrown a fair bit up the road. So one of the detectives said, yeah, it was about 20-odd metres that threw you up the road, literally the blast. So, so I thought I'd been hit by a car because hmm. I'm crossing the road, jaywalking. I thought I should have been done, done by a car. But obviously, it soon realised I wasn't that because I'm laying on the ground. You could hear the other detonators going off that were in the bomb uh, or in the car. So I, was, I remember thinking, oh, shit, I've got to get up and get out of here. So I stood up, couldn't feel my right leg. was was all numb. So the body obviously had shut it off because of the trauma. I remember putting my hand down and my hand went into basically there and I touched my, my bone. I thought, geez, I'm in a bit of trouble here. So... Um, I dragged myself across the last lane, I guess, towards the Russell Street building because um, I couldn't really have full mobility, obviously. And then I sort of got to that building there and then there was police coming down. I remember seeing blue shirts. And then I remember somehow, I don't know how it happened, I was laying down in the steps of the north door at that stage and there's a couple of policewomen there. And uh, I remember one of them took a bra off and tourniqueted my leg because obviously what, what had happened. And as I laid down and they were talking to me, I remember thinking I can't breathe out of the, the side. I was really struggling for air. And as you, you panic more, it's worse. So I just remember saying to myself, just calm down, you know, take it easy. And I said to one of the girls, I can't breathe out of this side. And she said, oh, there's a lot of blood on the back of your shirt. So I didn't know whether, I didn't know at that stage. It was a punctured lung at that stage. So the shrapnel had come through the back. The doc didn't know why it didn't break my ribs, but I went through my ribs and bent through them and continued through to puncture my lung and slice my kidney in half, pretty much, or lodge in the the curve of the kidney. So, yeah, and then within minutes it seemed like the ambulance was there, bang, I was loaded up and I was gone. And I remember being conscious right through most of the night until I think about midnight I went into surgery. Because as you're lying there, there's still no knowledge of what's happened. No. This is a fluid situation. Are there more bombs? Yep. I think at one point the ambulance man threw himself over your body to shield you from further injury. I think so. I remember that when I was laying down. That's right. Yeah, I remember. Because the detonators are still going off. And that's what I remember. I can remember hearing that, thinking they're still going off. There's something going on. But you're trying to process a mountain of information and register what's going on. It's very hard to think of like that. And obviously the injuries yourself. Um, people say, well, you must have been in immense pain. But I, I, I don't remember being... My leg, as I said, literally felt like it had been shut off. I couldn't feel anything on that right leg. 
the breathing was the biggest thing because you're laying down, which probably compounded the fact it was a it was a you know punctured lung. So to me, all I was thinking was, geez, I'm having trouble breathing here, and just take it easy, relax, you know. The ambos are here; it'll be you know they'll sort everything out. So that's was my thinking at the time. Yeah. It's kind of miraculous what happened in a way. It was yep. a tragedy, but fifty or sixty sticks of gelignite in that vehicle. Mm-hmm. The problem was they weren't very good at bomb making. They hadn't made a blister. Yep. And therefore, a number of the sticks did not go off. So there was a bus that had taken some kids off to the museum down the road. It yeah. was a busy lunchtime scene. There were cars going through and everything. But only one person was killed, Constable Angela Taylor. Mm-hmm. At what point did you know of Angela's plight? I wasn't until I was in the hospital, and I don't know the time frame. Obviously, I got laid in the ambulance taken into the Royal Melbourne. In those days, the uh, emergency ward ED was... I remember they pulled curtains between the bays. That's how it was. You know, it was very, obviously, we're talking 1986 here. So I was laying there and they're talking to me and the nursing staff and the doctors and asking questions. And then I remember just hearing this uh, scream, this screaming. It was like a really, oh, it's something I can't describe. And I remember another trolley coming in, I suppose, and wheeling in beside me. And then the nurses quickly pulled the curtain across. And I was trying to sort of, I'm laying down, trying to get up and have a bit of a look at who it is or what it is because of interest value. And then I heard him talking. I heard him say, I. Oh, What's your name, Angela? I'm a policewoman. Oh, okay. So then I knew that someone else had been injured. That was the first time I knew at the hospital, the Royal Melbourne. And I thought, wow, okay. And she wasn't in a good way from what I could see. Very briefly, it wasn't a great look, but, you know, it, it was, there was a lot of um, you know, black and because there's a lot of flame, she was badly burned, as we know. So, yes, yeah, something I Understandably, to... your countenance has changed when you discuss Angela yeah. from your own situation. Yes. And I wonder whether that's the trauma that you carry with you is because it took 24 days for poor Angela to pass away. Yes, that's right. And I think that not only traumatised those around, but the whole state, mm-hmm. you know. And mm. so do you think that's the harder part for you? That's the bit that I remember the most, like um, that sight, knowing that and thinking, wow, okay. Because, I mean, even though I was barely injured, I didn't feel, I guess you don't realise how injured you were. I remember my mum saying that she got a call from the, Someone in Melbourne, the police said, "Oh, look, your son's been involved in the in the bombing. And he's got a broken leg." That's all she got told. Then, obviously, you know, she came down and all that. They got her down here. But yeah, I think it is probably me. I do remember everything, or most things, um, but I particularly they're the bits that that really I remember vividly about her coming in. And then at one point, I think it was about two weeks into being in the hospital, I wanted to go and see her. I was getting better. I the first week I was out of it, spaced out, doing what they had to do. Second week. I was getting slowly getting a little bit better and I wanted to go and see her. And the nurses had worked it out and talked to her parents and my mum and dad. And I was at one point going to go, I had to go in a wheelchair and go and see her. But then I contracted Golden Staff from in the hospital. As you know, it sits in hospitals. So I contracted, they said, that's the last thing she needs. She can't afford any sort of um, further complications or infections. So I had to say, so the next thing, the next thing I got to really do anything with her was the funeral attend a funeral at the academy, which is something that I wanted to do and I was going to do hella high water. I was going to go to that funeral, no matter how crook I felt or whatever. So I think it's, um, yeah, I don't know. It's a good question, man. I don't know whether that's that's what I remember more, more than my stuff. I'm not sure. I don't know how that sort of, yeah. yeah. I don't know how, how you describe that from a psychological point of view. I don't know. Yeah, I so. think you just opened the trap door here. By yeah. The <laughs> I think that's, that's an important thing. Um, of course, this attack was born in my view, in H Division Pentridge. Right. And yep. what was going on there with Stanley John Taylor. Yep. 
other long-term prisoners in there, the brutality that was going on and the fact that you had people coming in there as thieves and small-time crooks who came out as murderers yep. and Taylor fits that category. How do you feel about Taylor ultimately? Oh, look, I couldn't give a shit about him, mate, to be honest. I don't if, – if I've ever focused on them, then I wouldn't have continued my life, you know. I mean, I don't I don't lose sleep over him, to be honest, really, and even with Minogue and all that, I don't – I mean, I think justice has been done. I really believe that. I have no problem with that. Um, and I couldn't give a flying hoot about them, to be honest, because um, if I did, then I'd be feeding – they've won. They win if that's the case. So that's not going to happen, you know, sort of thing. So. What happens when you see, I mean, Craig Minogue's been in the news recently yep. where his barrister's trying to get him out. You know, he's saying that his continuing incarceration in perpetuity is unconstitutional and all the rest of it. Got his right whack, didn't he? I think so. I think so. And I think he's he's keeping to get his right whack. And you only got to look at Angela's parents and what happened to her. And then we had a magistrate who was seriously injured too as well in all of this. So, you know what, uh, mate, you've made your bed, you've got to lie in it. So bad luck. In my view. People often forget Sergeant Mark Wiley, mm-hmm. who went to arrest Peter Reid, one of the suspects in the bombing, yep. and was himself wounded badly. Correct. And ultimately took his own life a couple of years ago. Yep. Do you think there needs to be recognition of his contribution and as a so. casualty of that? I think so. There's no doubt it was. And I got to – I didn't know Mark at the time during all of that investigation. I, he wasn't the guy – the focal point that would come and see me or let me know what was going on. I met Mark after I left the job and I actually did some work with him for many years uh, in different roles he had. A fantastic fella. Funnily enough, we never ever spoke about the bombing, ever. And I and I worked with him on and off for a period of probably five to six years doing work for him, you know, helping him out. When I say helping him out, as a contractor doing some work for him. Um, great bloke, but it, never once did we ever speak about it. And I didn't realise how, how affected he was by it. I guess, what the repercussions of it. Um, so, yeah, you're right. I think it should be. I think for him and for his family, I think it should be. should be recognised because there's no doubt that contributed to whatever led him to follow a path that, yeah, ultimately, which is really sad, he took his own life. Which yeah, is old awful. colleagues like George Hately, who's also been on our show, yep. say that there should be um, something on the honour roll or some special recognition yep. because of the impact. And the more we know about post-traumatic stress and depression and, and the lack of care back in those days. You didn't need it. I mean, possibly. <laughs> I'd argue you could have done with it anyway. I think I probably could have done with it. Yeah. 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 But I'll you, use that you, excuse you, anyway. That's you, all right. You yeah. found yeah. your own way. And, yeah. that, and that's all that's you can right. do in life. Yeah. But I think there needs to be a recognition of the yeah. impact of, because it's also when mothers and fathers put their kids out there to go in the force. That's that, right. You, they expect a duty of care to be maintained. Agreed. And, and I think some other casualties were the two ladies that, that helped me. Selena Belitho, and I can't remember the other lady's name, she ultimately left the job and moved to Queensland and to this day, well, I, last time I spoke to her was about probably eight or nine years ago. I've lost contact with her since then, but she was still affected by what she saw coming in to help me, what went on. Again, where's the recognition for people like that, that yes, they weren't involved, injured like myself, but like Mark, she was there and probably affected her more than it did me possibly. I don't know. So again, the same thing, mate. I think there should be some recognition for those guys Girls that helped out too. Yeah, and tell her story at least. I mean, criminal barrister uh, Bernie, the attorney, Barmer, was also there. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And he carried Angela Taylor That's right. uh, away from the scene. Yep. And poor old Bernie was moved to tears. And I think it's yep. happened twice in his life, although he, I think he's a sentimental bloke. Yeah, but, yeah. But you can see you that. Don't let anyone know that. On, though, yeah, that's right. <laughs> the ongoing legacy stays with you. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's right. And I think he's seen the, the aftermath of it. We've been in it. And without sounding, I don't know how you describe it, but 
you're in it, but you're, you're not watching from afar. They're seeing the blood, you know, what's happened, the injuries, the, the aftermath of it, like Selena and the other lady that helped me. That can affect them in a, in a different way, but sometimes worse, I think. That's what I've seen from, obviously, with Mark and from Selena and other people. There's probably more people that don't talk about it that are affected by it. I think you're right. Yeah, yeah and I guess the more you talk about it, the more it encourages others of that era to, to deal with their, to deal with, yeah, their stories. yeah. You're probably faced with a choice at this point. You've recovered physically mm-hmm. pretty much, you know, how are the physical legacies of that? Uh, at the moment, yeah, look, touch wood, I'm okay. I've um, still got scarring, of course, and all that. Mobility-wise, I went on to play footy after it, so in terms of that, um, I believe I've got to be a hearing loss. So I, at the moment, I, I look, I'll say, you know, at the moment, I'm a mate's been pushing me for 30 years to actually put a claim in, and I haven't done anything about it, right? You I've haven't never, put a claim never in? Never done anything with the work cover. the time, there was a crimes compensation application. Those days, it was I was entitled to eight and a half hours, which I took, and the lawyer took their 1500 out of it, whatever it was. That's it. I haven't done any more. So at the moment, I finally, um, it was obviously my time. I felt comfortable to do it eventually, and he's... Um, a lawyer friend of mine, he's referred me to a friend and we're going through it, but their uh, department, Good. of course, is fighting it uh, through their solicitors, uh, through their um, provider, Gallagher Bassett, and then their solicitors saying, well, no, we disagree, it didn't happen, which I don't find, I find ironic and absolutely... It didn't happen? Apparently it didn't happen to the extent I'm saying about the damage and all that to my hearing and all that. So they've sent me to all these specialists as they do, one saying, they're all saying I don't have any hearing loss, but I, I know for a fact that I, I struggle sometimes to listen in noisy rooms, you know. Anyway, look, that's that'll take its course. But yeah, good. at the end of the day, yeah, look, I, I just that was something I didn't I, I love the job. I joined and I was only in the job twelve months, not even twelve months when it when it happened. I'm like, I want to start this career. I, my junior phase training was at St Albans Police Station. Tough old town back in those days, old St Albans. And um it was I loved it. That first four months, guns pulled on you, crooks fights. It was just, a, I thought as a young man, this is the world I want to be in, right? This is the job I love, you know? And so then this happened. So I couldn't wait to get back to work because I wanted to be in the job. There was never a moment of saying, listen, never. or your mum saying, Carl, come on. No, no not ever. Be a postman not if you ever, want to work no, for the yeah, state. You know? Not ever. She didn't say it once. She was very, they were great supporting parents, mum and dad, but I just wanted to get back to work. So I did three months temporary uh, light duties after I'd initially been um, injured and got out and back on track. And that was the old Carlton North District office in those days with the chief inspector. And I couldn't wait to get back. And when I when I got the clearance, I was back into it and finished my training and then off I went from there. I, and I don't know whether that is also impacted the fact that I um I don't believe I have any sort of nightmare and memory sort of stuff um, because I just wanted to get back to work. I just was keen to get back because I'd love that four months so much. I just thought this is a, this is my career is where I want to be. Because a lot of people today, forgive me for being cynical, mm-hmm. would go off sick forever. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And a lot of people said that to me. Mate, you've had the perfect vehicle. Why don't you just go off now? You're done. They'll look after you, get a pension. I'm like, but I want to go back to work. I love the job. So uh, that's probably why my motivation was to get back and just get working again, um, which now in, in hindsight with all this cray bullshit going on, I could have been like that. I could have just said, you know what, I'm off and I'm, I'm, I'm going to take easy street, but that's not me. I don't do that. I'm not a, I'm not a lazy bugger. I'm, not a, I'm always a worker and, and that's me. But I think also, and I've dealt with many people who've been in vivid 
tragic situations like this. And there's, there's some people let that moment define their entire lives. Mm-hmm. They become a factor of that day. You didn't do that. And you embarked on a career that was fascinating, challenging, and no doubt a bit scary at times as well in mm-hmm. Undercover. How did that happen? Well, basically, after I went back to the training phase, I went to Brunswick Police Station as a gazetted constable in those days. Great place. Yeah, back in the late 80s, pretty tough town. It was really good to work there. I met with some great people, worked with some great people. And it was from that that a job came along that I, that I was offered an undercover role because I um, had a few um, pictures on me and I, I could grow my hair and I could fit in pretty much anywhere. So uh, I did I, a I don't job. think you can do that today, Carl. No, I have to say on the hair front. I've lost the hair front. I'm, I'm the same brother, so it's all right. <laughs> yeah, back in those days, I did have long hair. So did and, I. Uh, and you, you look back and think, I'm glad I didn't get haircuts back then because you knew what was coming. You didn't know right, what was yeah, coming. Well, yeah, so, <laughs> but you're right. I can't grow hair now. I look pretty awfully with the back. But um, I did a job in the pub sitting around for six months, drinking grog, trying to befriend a certain couple of crooks and buy guns. That was my role. Um, got a taste of that and went, I love this part of the, the world. I want to be doing this. And at that stage, another friend of mine was in surveillance, said, mate, come and do a bit of surveillance. It's great. You know, you get to drive a nice car, you follow people around and see what they're doing. I'm like, okay. So that sort of started that career. So for the last probably 10 years of my career, I did the blended between surveillance and undercover work. So you're in a COVID area, so it didn't matter. I wasn't going into police stations and out and stuff like that. So yeah, and I love that part of the job. I That was probably the best 10 years doing the undercover jobs and the surveillance work was just awesome. Yeah. A lot of it is still confidential. It's all about police yep. method and methodologies and so forth. But if there is a case that you can talk about in that period, which one would it be? Probably, oh, there's a lot of them. We did uh, a couple of uh, incite to murders uh, when they were very popular back in that sort of early 90s. Um, there's a gentleman I remember who lived in Moody Ponds and he uh, wanted his uh, brother killed and his brother's wife because it was the family inheritance. The home was worth, back in those days, a million dollars. So I met him over a period of meetings, taped it all, and uh, yeah, he offered me amount of money, paid a deposit, and then we, uh, you know, I murdered his brother and his uh, his wife, supposedly. So um, they were good jobs. I loved them. How do you prepare for a role like that, being a hitman? <laughs> I think you just got to look ugly like me. That was all I needed at the start. You got to talk the talk and walk the walk, mate. I mean, you've got to, um, there's always an introduction in from an un- a crook who's turned informer. They will do an introduction in for you sometimes. Um, not always, but, you know, they may have been caught and guess what? You know, they've got to... Um, get their sentence reduced or something. So there's often something like that. So, yeah, look, you've got to play the role. It's a bit of research in some of it. I mean, those roles weren't too bad. I did a role in the state, which I can't say a lot about. It's still going at the moment. But I did three months of research to get this role up and running with with the sergeant who's my controller. And we had to actually pretty much pull a death certificate of someone who fitted the role I needed to be in, talk to their family, get permission, and I became that person and all those sorts of things from there. So that was a very in-depth role. That took a while, three months of prep before he even even made the first phone call. And that was a cold start. Like that was me making a phone call, not even getting introductions. So he could have said the first phone call, piss off, see you later, mate, and the whole job would have been done. So, yeah, look, I think it suited my personality. I mean, I could talk to people on many levels. I could fit and blend in. You might uh, do a bit of research if, if you, know, you were the target. I'd be doing a bit of research on you trying to find a bridge that we can talk on, whether it might be sport, politics, something, try and find a parallel that we can... A rapport. A rapport and bang, and off we go from there. So, yeah, something you might enjoy doing. Do you go to the fights? Do you like the races? Whatever it might be. So there's ways around, without giving too much away, you've got to sometimes use a bit of research into your background so that I can work out where I would be best to try and make that bridge and to build a rapport and 
off we go down the track. Yeah. Do you ever have your cover blown? Yeah, I did. A couple. Of, uh, well, once, twice, Nelly, twice. Uh, once was um, I was going into a pub in Flemington with a with the crook, and we're in there we're having a beer, a bite to eat, and uh, the divan to. Members walking off the street, and I don't know what they were doing there, but I looked over and I saw one. I thought, shit, that's a squad mate of mine. I remember the academy, and I'm thinking, oh, geez, there, we're going to go here. So I'm thinking, how can I cover this? What can I do? They've walked in, gone to the bar, talked to the barman. I'm, we're sort of around this part of the pub, and I'm thinking, geez. So in the end, I just got up, walked over to him, and just grabbed him in a headlock and took him to the ground. And I'm trying to whisper in his ear, I'm undercover, mate. I'm doing a job. Lock me up. Give me a couple and lock me up. And he's like, what the fuck? And he's like, oh, he goes, what the? I said, just lock me up, mate, lock me up. He goes, all right, all right. So he's got on top of me, give me a couple and lock me up and took me away. So the next time I met the crook, the crook's like, what the hell was that all about? I said, that copper belted me in the cells 12 months ago. I hate him and all this. He's like, oh, good work, mate. Well done. You took him out. I thought I got locked up. So sure, that was a very close call. Quick uh, thinking. I mean, one mistake some undercovers make is that they choose another name, not theirs. Not theirs. And they're seen by a friend or a... And Correct. bang, they're exposed. Correct. So you've got to be smart about what name you use. Um, and like, so if, if I was Carl, I think I was using Joe on that occasion. Well, if you ever said anything, well, my middle name would have been Joe. You know, so I did a few jobs before the covert name policy came in, the assumed name policy. So I was using my real name. I had to use my real name at court and all that at the start for probably at least 12 running months. Then then the government introduced the um, assumed name policy for undercovers to use where, yeah, obviously it makes a lot more sense. But in the early days doing it and people before me doing it, we had to use our real names. So the crooks knew your real name. We had to use our real name. Our statements were in our name. All the courts would do is take out your surname, but they, it's not hard to work out. Like so, and I remember doing uh, an early job was on a solicitor called Donald Campbell. It was a solicitor who obviously went to the dark side and I bought – Oh, a truckload of stolen toys over the back of the car park at Dimmies in Richmond there, just off uh, Swan Street. And it's still, uh, the surveillance boys were, were filming it. I think they still use the detective training school now as a bit of an educational thing. Then I bought a gun off him through some other crooks. That was under my real name. And I remember seeing Don, he must have done his five years or six years, one day on the train, down the city, and next day I hear this, hello, Carl, look around, it's Donnie Campbell on the train. I'm like, hey, mate, how are you? He goes, you did a really good job on me. I said, oh, well, that was the job, mate. He goes, yeah. Fair enough, walked off. I'm thinking, Jesus, like, you know, fair there cop. you go. Fair cop. Yeah, he was all right about it. So, um, but yeah, no, that was, um, I enjoyed that work. It was really good. It's challenging. You've got to really think on your feet. You've got to be able to adapt very quickly to situations and you've got to be able to talk the talk and walk the walk, as I said earlier. If you are a drug dealer, you've got to be a drug dealer. You know, you've got to portray yourself that way. You an actor? No, I'm not. I, I've had a few people ask me to go into acting, but I don't think I'll ever be an actor, mate. That's not me. No, that's, <laughs> exactly. You know. One of the issues about being the surveillance squad is sometimes you have to work on your brother and sister officers. Were you in that position? No. Well, in in our time in the in the surveillance unit, so I was part of the crime surveillance unit. Before that, it was the drug squad surveillance unit. When they were two units, they merged and become the crime surveillance unit. I think about '93. We never did any jobs on members. That was ESD or ISU or ethical standards, had their own surveillance team. So we never did. If one came into a job we were doing with a crook, all of a sudden, and we did have this happen once where they met someone and once we got some photos, we realised it was actually a serving member. We then stopped it and then the bosses took it off and handed it over to ESD or ISU, whatever it was in those days. So we weren't doing any of that. Um, I don't know what they do now, but back in my time, no, we didn't. We didn't do anything like that. So, yeah. And you stayed 
detective senior constable. Yes. Didn't want to rise to, uh, beyond that? No, not really. I, I love the work. I think I was very happy doing that work. I enjoyed that work. To go to the next level of sergeant, I could have stayed at the surveillance unit, but I wouldn't have been able to go to the undercover unit. Um, so I think it was just the fact I enjoyed the work and I liked, I worked with some really good people in both those units. The fact I was in a covert unit, whether it be surveillance or undercover, meant I could just go off and do undercover jobs then come back to the surveillance unit. So I'm not walking in out of police stations or headquarters. So less chance of my head getting seen by a, by a crook or their solicitors. Because a lot of time it's their solicitors that uh, give them the heads up on things as we know, you know. They're trying to look after their clients the best they can, you know, sort of things. Now, after 15 years you get out, why? I think I, I got an offer to do a little bit of work for a government agency overseas. So I took that up. And back in those days- Top you secret? Top secret. Yeah, no, it wasn't that top secret. Just under a foreign affairs sort of banner. Um, there was no leave without pay in those days. Christine Nixon brought that in when she came in ultimately as chief commissioner. So I couldn't leave and take 12 months off for two years. So I initially thought that would be, yeah, I, I waited up for a period of time and then took up the offer. It was only about 12 months uh, and then- Basically, that contract ended and I then went into the private sector, which is what I do now. I've been in the private sector ever since. Yeah. What have you been doing? In the early days, I was doing a lot of um, security for families, uh, some certain families around town, looking after their travel arrangements here. High overseas. net worth individuals. With oh, yeah, correct. Sort personal of, which security. Is, which is a lot of, a lot of ex-coppers do sometimes. These families are really good. They're great to work with and I still am friendly with them now because it was just at the time. Um, I got off to do a little bit of work with, you know, celebrities and TV actors and that didn't like it because they're a lot of them are full of themselves and it's babysitting and it's just you really don't it's not a threat there I, I like the serious threat stuff that's me I like planning around organizing it all did a bit of work for one stage for a couple of banks when they've had bank managers threatened seriously by people they're foreclosing on you know guns are produced threatened and that's the sort of stuff I like to do and plan around that um and then I uh Pretty much went into a bit of risk assessment stuff, doing a lot of risk assessments and for buildings, commercial buildings, um, that sort of stuff, prisons, which I enjoy doing a little bit around that. And then the last three years, I guess, has been really doing what I do, in the, which I love the most, is the domestic violence space, doing some work in there, um, doing safety and security audits for the victim survivors at their homes uh, once IVAs are in place and the perpetrator's been removed and because there's still a lot of stalking. It's, it's unbelievable, some of the stories. Um, it's very sad. And unfortunately, the work has just increased 40-odd percent in two years with COVID. Well, people sort of say there's an epidemic of domestic violence, but what we're seeing, though, are women and men sometimes mm -hmm. yep. coming forward and making reports Absolutely. and police taking it seriously and, and events flowing from there. Absolutely, and that's exactly right. And the program I work under is a program that was a pilot about three and a half, four years ago from Family Safety Victoria. It went well, so they rolled it out to the 17 DHS or DHHS and now DFFH is their new name. Department of Family, Fairness and something else, Housing. Um, it's in each of the 17 districts in Victoria. So there's a coordinator that sits in agencies like Berry Street or Women's Health West or Gen West, Good Shepherd, and they manage the program. So there's funding available for women for the safety and security side. So it might be looking at homes to implement just change locks, something simple that they can't afford to do. Might be doing uh, new locks on windows. It might be putting in cameras. It could be dash cams in cars if they're being followed. Um, by the perpetrator because there's still a lot of stalking and the tech side of his, his events at the moment, the tech safety side, um, you know, through um, phones, access to laptops and all that, that is huge at the moment. That's where they are stalking him a lot, the women, and they've got to understand. It's an education process as well, what we do. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think there'll probably be one woman out there who's got an ex who's doing exactly this to them right now. What advice would you give to them about what technology and what also assistance that they can... Yeah, look, there's, there's plenty of assistance out there. If you, if you approach... I guess the initial agencies are your safe steps and your orange doors. They're the first response 
After that, they'll do things like quickly change a lock, move you to a location if it's that extreme to a safe house or, you know, emergency accommodation. They'll then refer the work out to the agencies where I work for, those ones in the regions. We'll come in, the case managers do come in and look after you in terms of uh, flexible support packages is what they call it. And that could include many things. could include uh, maybe a new car they might need. It might be, um, you know, uh, furniture. But it also there's a part of it for security upgrades. And it's also a part of it for mental health too. So there's support for the, with the women dealing with what they've got to deal with. But in terms of what you directly said, yeah, there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of fancy stuff out there that people say, I've got this equipment, I could do this, I could, you know, get your, you know, your phones and draw down the information and see. Factory reset. You know, that's one of the simplest things. Factory set, reset your devices, save your contacts, save your photos, any evidence you've got, factory reset your device. And if there's malware, spyware, or they've changed the settings to get into your location on your maps, kills everything. Start again. Download your maps, change your password, and off you go. That's very simple. A lot of people don't want to say that. Other people that do what I do because they make a lot of money out of doing the technical side of, oh, we need your device to do this. But that's the simplicity of it. Just do, do it that. yourself. Do it yourself. Yeah. yeah. Or a we're, teenage kid who knows what they're doing. We're also seeing people, husbands, boyfriends, yep. uh, getting tracking devices and putting them on cars Correct. and yep. find my iPhone and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. It's, it's a war. There's it? a lot out there. And technology has been great in advancements, but also the downside or the two-edged sword is that what you're saying. So a GPS tracker with a magnetic base that you put under the car, don't need access to it, three o'clock in the morning, slide under it while it's parked in the driveway, $500 buys you it. And then it's battery life's a couple of weeks and very easy. They get it all on their phone, check your locations and see where you're going. That's probably the most expensive of it. I've seen some that are going to the bottom of the car, that tap into the power or the fuse boxes. Same thing, a GPS base one, very small unit, three or $400, right through to... Um, tile trackers that they sell at JB Hi-Fi and places like that. Little tile tracker that, you know, they sell to find your keys. You know, you look at, oh, where's my keys? I've left it here. But it can throw it in a car. And I only found one recently in the service books of a vehicle that the perp had put in there. But the thing is, you've got to be within a couple of hundred metres. It doesn't send the signal. It's not a strong signal. It doesn't have the ability to, to send it out. So you've got to be within a couple of hundred metres. But there was one in there and the perp had been following it. So it could do physical surveillance watching the little tile tracker knowing where, and then if she pulled into a service station or a shopping centre, would get out and follow her, even though it's against all the orders, but that doesn't worry them. So, yeah, technology is amazing. Um, and, you know, that sort of stuff's very available. Tile trackers are 60 bucks. You buy two at you know, JB Hi-Fi. It's very much, it's, and that, they're the most common things we're, we're finding or locating on women's vehicles is tracking devices. Yeah, it's reason. February 4th, 2022, and I think there have been 22 women killed in this country already. Already? Wow, I didn't in know In these that. sort of circumstances. Yeah. So to me, you're still working like a policeman. In essence, yeah. I guess it's a similarity. Yeah, there is. It's helping people, which I think is very important. I think it comes back to your own integrity and your values and mine are integrity and honesty and, and uh, I think community. I like to be able to involve and do things like that. And I think it's only as – my role is a very small role uh, and I'm not taking – any away from what we do, but the case managers, the ladies that are generally the women that are case managers, they are the women at the forefront. They are doing a fantastic job. They're dealing with multitudes of cases each. You know, they've got workloads which are unbelievable. They are fantastic. So what I do is only a small part of it. I'm only a small cog in this big wheel. But I think it's a support service for women who have never had the chance, didn't know these things existed to make the move to leave an abusive relationship, whether it be financial emotional, physical, it doesn't matter. There's, they, they all have the same impacts in some ways. I think these those services are out there and they're there and they're available. Is there an endless bucket of money? No, there's not. But at least if they can get 
an amount of money to help them install, maybe get the locks changed, put up a couple of spotlights, uh, maybe a camera system, depending what the, the money is. It, it just gives them a bit of peace of mind to take control back of their lives because this is what it's all been about, control of the perpetrator controlling them and making sure isolate them from their family and friends so they don't feel they can make this step to move away from them. And I think it's fantastic. And the women at the forefront of that, the case managers, I have full of praise for them. They are the the true heroes. And I I sort of hear a lot of people talk about our, our emergency services, and they're right. I mean, the Ambos, the Fires, the Coppers, during COVID, they've done a great job and they've been at the forefront of the hospital staff and the nurses. And there's a silent element here of the case managers who haven't been able to go out to their clients work from home, but we as auditors, safety and scooters, we're going out doing this sort of stuff. They particularly have not been acknowledged and they've kept working through this whole time with increasing workloads. And I think it's a little bit remiss that no one has seen that in the sector to realise that they are the ones that are doing a bloody hell of a job. And I've got to say that. I think they, they're not acknowledged enough. I really don't. Good. Mm. But what a career. What a life. A yeah. testament to resilience, to optimism and a sense of public duty and service, what advice would you give to a young person who's listening to this and thinking about a career in the cops? I'd say go for it. You know the risks. You don't apply thinking I'm, I'm never going to be involved in a, a domestic violence situation or a, a fight or a, or a, have a gun or a weapon pulled on me. The reality is you're going to, as long as you're aware of that. Training now is so much more than it was when I went through the academy. I remember we did a little bit of boxing training with a bloke called Desi Doogood, who was a fantastic fella, and that's all we did. People thought we did all this martial arts, great stuff. We did a bit of boxing training. That's all we did, really. That was it. Now there's a lot more involved. You've got more, a lot more equipment than they have now options. We didn't have those options. I think go for it because you know what? You won't know until you give it a go. If you really want to help people and catch a crook, the two fundamentals I think are important, go for it. Uh, I reckon it's a great career. You'll meet some really good people. You should meet some really good people who you'll have friends for life. That's what I would well, think. I'm glad to have met you. Thank you, Adam. Because you are good people. Thank you. I appreciate thank you that. For your, thank you for your time today and being on Australian Detectives. And thank you for your service, Carl Donadio. Thank you, Adam. And a pleasure to, to be here again, as always, with you. Thank you. If you'd like to hear more of my work, go to Real Crime Features, Real Crime Interviews, and State Crime Command Investigations. Thanks for listening. Executive producer, Grant Tothill. Mixing, editing and theme music by Matt Nikolic. Associate producer, Matt Dwyer. Research by Nolly Wei Shand. Digital producer, Jack Shand. This has been a Real Crime production. Written and produced by Adam Shand. Listener.